There's a passage in John Bunyan's uh, Pilgrim's Progress uh, where the main character, a guy named Christian, uh, comes upon two other travelers. One is named Formalist, and the other's name is Hypocrisy. And they're, they're all on the journey together, at least for a time, uh, although Christian finds out that it, even though they're on this journey and they're, they're going down the same path, uh, they didn't begin it in the same way. Uh, Christian's starting point, you may know the story, was through a place called the Narrow Gate. Uh, but he finds out as he asks formalists and hypocrisy about uh, how they got started on their trip, he finds out that they didn't actually begin through the Narrow Gate. Um, they explain uh, that they had heard about the narrow gate and found out that it was actually very difficult to get through. And so uh, they discovered that there was a shortcut, and, uh, which involved jumping over a wall. And so that's how they started this journey. And as the, as the three of them continue on this journey together, eventually they come to a hill. It's, it's kind of more than a hill. It's, it's uh, somewhere between a hill and a mountain. And the name of the hill is called difficulty. And they've got to get over it to continue on the journey. Um, and right in front of them, there is a steep and treacherous looking path. But there are also two other paths. Um, one uh, is sort of level, the other is wide. They're easy to navigate. You can see um, that they involve easy walks. And formalist and hypocrisy reason that, um, you know, since since uh, these ways look better, they sort of think, you know, we'll, we'll be able to get around and continue the path, even though they can't tell for sure uh, that's where it's going. And so they decide to go on these, uh, on these ways, while Christian reasons that he is going to take uh, the steep and narrow path uh, over the hill, uh, because it's the sure way. Incidentally, those two other paths had names. One was called Danger and the other was called destruction. Now, why do I bring all that up? Well, you know, like you, we've been going through the, sum, the Psalms this summer, um, and we decided to go through the first 12. And we started, of course, with Psalms 1 and 2, and, you know, which I look at uh, as really the, the introduction to the whole book, um, kind of the double doors into the, into the whole Psalter. And, you know, if you will, kind of the beginning of the journey, if you get into the Psalms. And it struck me uh, that those two psalms, you know, are what they are um, and are where they are for the same reason, you know, that the narrow gate is what it is and is, is where it is. It's the beginning of the journey. It's kind of hard to get through. Um, it, it's, um, you know, difficult. Uh, but it makes all the difference for how you continue on. You know... In terms of its theological and emotional range, the Psalms are quite a journey, right? Uh, I don't know if you just have ever picked up the Psalms and sort of flipped to one and you find out all of a sudden, you know, something like you have in this Psalm. I want to break the teeth of the wicked, you know. Um, that's kind of hard to absorb, hard to understand. Uh, they're wide-ranging. But how you begin with the Psalms, how you approach them matters a lot. And I think that's um, what we need to sort of soak in before we get into Psalm 3, before you get into all the other questions and all the other challenges that come up uh, on this journey, you know, how to live a godly life, how to pray, how to, how to raise your kids, you know, how to, how to work faithfully, um, how to deal with all kinds of adversity, how to rest, right, how to worship. Uh, we have to travel uh, 
through those two psalms that are searching. You know, Psalm 1, I know that you've uh, gone through these two psalms here, uh, challenges and searches out your personal story. It inquires. It asks, you know, where are you in relation to the living God? Have you put your faith in him or not? You know, have you, have you, have you considered that? Have you considered life with him and life apart from him? And Psalm 2 really challenges, you know, all of, all of history. Psalm 1 is kind of a challenge to my personal story. Uh, Psalm 2 is a challenge to all of history. Where do the nations stand? Where, does, where is all of this going? You know? Now, again, if Psalms 1 and 2 are the narrow gate, you know, um, I want to say that when you get to Psalm 3, uh, you might think, um, you know, you, you might see that this is a psalm that gets pretty testy. Uh, it's something like a hill of difficulty. Uh, you know, among the reasons this is a test is the growing and very popular idea that, you know, maybe getting into the Christian faith was difficult for you. Maybe you had to really, you know, turn from a life of, you know, a certain kind of lifestyle and, and then come into a sort of a Christian lifestyle, and maybe that felt like, you know, I've gotten in now, and from here on out, it's going to be, you know, smooth sailing. Yeah, that is, in fact, a popular idea. Um, you know, Christianity is the solution to all my problems. If only I would become a Christian, things would, ma- you know, things would be better. I would be happier. Um, life would be blessed. Uh, this is, you know, not only kind of popular idea, it's kind of big business. Right? Uh, a recent jacket of uh, our recent New York Times number one bestseller, the jacket on it, uh, says this, authored by a well-known pastor of a big church. Um, and here's how he kind of summarizes this, uh, this book. As, uh, here's what it says. It's a call to readers to seize the day and recognize that God has given them the power to improve their lives. Whether you're going through a difficult time are looking for ways to increase in God's favor and soar to new heights of fulfillment, this book will provide bold new prayers, inspiring stories, and practical tools to move you forward in faith and realize your dreams. Now that's kind of, that's a, that's a number one New York Times bestseller. You know? So, you know, even if you were to agree that, you know, going through, getting into the Psalms, the narrow gate of, you know, where do I stand in relation to God? Where's all this going? Uh, You might think by the time you get to Psalm 3, you should be soaring to new heights of fulfillment. Um, So it might shock you to find out that the very first thing you come to is a lot of trouble, real difficulty, big trouble. It looks really hard. You know, this Psalm is raw. It's full of all kinds of struggle. It's full of a lot of fears and a ton of tears. The background of it, if you, can re- if you read the heading of the psalm, is Absalom's rebellion against David, against his kingship. You could read about that in 2 Psalm 15 to 18, uh, when uh, Absalom, his son, tried to seize the throne and tried to take the kingdom for himself by capturing and killing his own father right? and everyone loyal to him. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that story except to say that that story happened because of David's own sin uh, by sending a man named Uriah to his sure death so that he could take his wife Bathsheba. You can read about that in 2 Samuel 12. And it's clear, you know, from the situation that God's hand is heavy on David. You know, he's in, a, he's in the situation he's in because of his own sin. It's, it's you know, a mess. 
It's a lot of trouble. Uh, it, it looks like the worst kind of trouble because there's very little that can be done, it seems. Um, David is on the run, and even beyond that, you know, it's because of David's own sin. But, you know, my hope is as we kind of get into this in a little more depth, um, we'll be able to look at it from another angle, you know, with the hope that as we, as, as we see this trouble, we'll actually see that, you know, it's, the, it's actually the best kind of trouble, and for the very same reason. Because there's nothing David can do about it. David can't help David. Right? David has to cry out. He has to uh, go to God. He needs more help than himself. Now, to see how that help comes, I want to look at just four things in this psalm um, that speak to what the journey of a real living faith in God looks like. Uh, and they are sort of these four things. First are the enemies who are after you. Second is the God who is for you. Uh, thirdly, the peace that awaits you. And finally, the faith that grows in you. Um, the psalm starts with a searching question. David asks, you know, oh Lord, how many are my foes? Uh, the question kind of makes its own statement. David doesn't even know how many enemies he has. It's a question for God, not him. Um, he can't sit down and list them out. Enemies are numerous. Uh, they're also vicious. David says that they're rising against him. They're coming for him personally. Uh, they're not just bad people causing problems. They are directing their rage at him uh, directly. They want to get after him. He's a target. They're numerous, they're vicious, and they're also malicious. Notice how their maliciousness, however, is formulated theologically. Um, they're not, you know... Um, raging atheists, uh, they turn their opposition at David's soul, and they talk about, you know, whether or not that soul can have salvation, and they say, surely there's no salvation for him and God. Yeah, this is, this is getting interesting, right? Uh, they're not atheists. They're not even saying that God can't save. What they're saying is God won't save, at least not someone like David, um, not this time. And you know, maybe we could relate to that logic. Uh, I mean, you know, the fact is David is a big sinner. He's in this mess because of his own uh, sin, because of his own failure. No one's disputing that. Um, so they accuse him with a lot of confidence. And they say, you know, David sinned too badly. He is cursed. He is beyond saving. Uh, and you can imagine words like that would devastate you, devastate your conscience. You know, maybe you felt like that. You know, maybe you felt, you know, the weight of your own sin. The, the mess that you're in, you know, you realize is very much your own fault. You know, where do you go with that? You know, it would be very easy to accept as, as true. It would be very easy to agree and say, you know, you're right. There's no salvation for me. I'm, far too, gone. I'm too far gone. I've sinned too badly. Um, you know, what would the one true holy God want to do with someone like me? Uh, so it's really amazing to see where David goes with this. Um, in a sense, David does agree. You know, yes, uh, in fact, you are dealing with someone whose sin is, is deep, dark, and destructive, so deep that I don't deserve God's grace. Um, but from the perspective of this psalm, you know, that's uh, not for David the place that takes him to despair or condemnation. It actually becomes, you know, kind of a good start for the prayer. Um, you know, so even though David could say, yeah, I do have that kind of soul. I do have the kind of soul that is worthy of condemnation. Uh, he takes their words not as so much an accusation against him and the kind of person he is, 
but he takes them as an accusation against his God and the kind of God he is. That's where the outrage is. Uh, that's where David gets riled up. Uh, his prayer is not one of self-defense, but it's one of zeal for God. Uh, you know, in, in a sense, he said, you know, forget what they're saying about me. Look at what that kind of statement says about you, God. It is outrageous to say that anyone would be beyond saving. It would be one thing to look at my life and say there's no hope, there's no salvation in him. It's quite another thing to say there's no hope for him in God, no salvation for him in God. That's, you know, that's saying that, that, that souls like mine can't be saved. And clearly you don't know the God you're talking about. That is an outrage. So David tells God about that. He takes his outrage to God. This kind of, this, you know, needs its way into his prayers. Uh, he doesn't mutter it to himself, okay? He doesn't um, text his friends. He couldn't text then, but, you know, he doesn't stew over it. Um, he prays it. And, and it's a striking, I think almost, you know, it's a poignant moment <laughs> in the psalm uh, because he's crying out to the very God whom his enemies are saying is indifferent to him, has gotten over him, you know, is ready to move on to a more worthy person. You know, someone who has, uh, you know, kept a really great string of quiet times or whatever, um, whatever your measure might be. You know, he pours his heart out to the God who they say doesn't care. It's poignant. It's powerful. You know, it's a kind of a rebuke to his accusers. And it's heartening to his own soul. So he answers his enemies who are after him. And after that, he runs and embraces the God who is for him. This is in verses 3 to 4. Uh, he decries what his enemies say about God. But he doesn't despair. He, he keeps from despair. Again, you know, not by kind of giving himself a pep talk, uh, you know, changing his attitude, uh, making resolutions, you know, deciding he's going to get on to some good habits, um, you know, seeking to prove he's righteous or something like that. He actually has kind of left self-concern, and he is now concerned with the person and work of God. He's pressing into that. The next part of his prayer, rather than doubting in God, is delighting in God, in his person, and his nature. He really relishes um, who this God is. It's, it's, it's very close, I think, you know, uh, to what Presbyterians love, which is a confession of faith. That's what this is. It's a confession of faith. It's worship. Um, it, is, it is sort of holding on to these delicious thoughts about who God is and how he works and how he saves. And, and, and oh, by the way, it's a rebuttal to his enemies. You know, it's, it's a rebuttal to all his troubles. It's a rebuttal to his predicament. All at the same time, his answer to all of it is who God is. And it, and it comes in this kind of compact, concentrated burst of praise, extolling God for who he is. You know, and again, it's not exhaustive. Uh, he, he, he doesn't go on and on, but what he does is he grabs on, you know, to, to what I would call just kind of the particular excellencies of the God he worships and how those particular excellencies address his troubles specifically. You know, as if to say, I'm experiencing this difficulty and this pain and this trial, and here is how in each place um, God is addressing those, those issues. Uh, getting at my troubles, um, showing himself faithful, showing himself to be sufficient, the entirety of my sufficiency in himself, 
so he praises him in a number of ways. I'll identify a few of them. He talks about God as his protection. Okay, David's in trouble. He turns to God and he says, you are my protection. He calls him a shield. Uh, enemies are pursuing him. Uh, there's arrows out there somewhere that have David's name on them. Uh, there are itchy trigger fingers, you know, ready to get him into his sights, but not to worry. You know, God is my protection. Uh, he worships him as the God who is his life. Uh, you get at this uh, when, you know, when he calls him my glory. Uh, David's you know, story is popularly known as kind of a rags to riches story, but this is kind of a riches to rags story, right? Uh, he's gone from being a king to a fugitive. And, and from being secure to in jeopardy, and from having immense power, wealth, and respect to, to having none of that. And so he says, you are my glory. You know, that's quite a statement from someone who's kind of left all the things that we would associate with glory, humanly speaking. C.S. Lewis wrote a famous essay called The Weight of Glory, where he emphasizes that, that when we talk about the glory of God, we're talking about that which has weight and substance and permanence. Um, something that is not fleeing or exhaustible. Um, and he sums it up with this great, you know, sort of C.S. Lewis line by saying this, and I think this expresses the, what David is going through in his prayer right now. He says this, He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. You know, so David is saying, you know, I've, I've, essentially I've lost nothing because I have God. You know, he's my glory. And so even though, you know, kingdom and crown have been taken from me, um, my status and my wealth and my identity um, is all in God. My kingdom is in in him. He's all the glory I could ever need. So God's his protection, his glory, and finally he talks about God as his restoration. You see this when he talks about God as as being the lifter of his head. Um, that's a phrase that's used a lot through the Psalms, and it's the idea that, that God is a God who delights in restoring people to himself. You, know? you ever experience that? Do you, are you friends with anyone that you used to hate? You know, or have, you, have you ever been restored to somebody? Have you ever known kind of the particular joy of that? That's one of the great things about the church, by the way. You know, uh, it sort of forces you to do that. Um, it's one of the wonderful benefits. Well, that's... God delights in that. Restoration, lifting of the head. There's a potent picture of this in Genesis 40 um, about Joseph. You might remember Joseph and was accused of seducing a, an official's wife, Potiphar's wife, and he, and he gets thrown in prison because his master's anger is kindled against him. Um, you know, he, he, he wants nothing to do with him ever again. He wants him to rot in jail. Um, and there's this chief cupbearer, and there's a baker, and the, Joseph, Joseph interprets their dreams Uh, that the cupbearer will be restored and the baker won't. Uh, And the cupbearer is restored. And and the language of that restoration says that the Pharaoh uh, lifted up his head. You know, uh, he restores him to his position as if nothing had ever happened, uh, welcoming him back. Uh, Incidentally, ironically, the baker's head was lifted as well, uh, not unto restoration but unto hanging, okay? That's not the kind of lifting of the head David's talking about here. So, you know, in this time of, of being regarded as an outlaw, you know, of running away, uh, David, you know, who's lost his position because of his own sin, uh, he trusts that it's, God's, it's in God's gracious character uh, to restore him, to delight in that restoration. 
Uh, and he can become confident in that because he worships a God who is inclined toward him. He says that he answers, he answers me from his holy hill. You know, instead of being tossed aside like his enemies say, he's actually tended to uh, intimately. You know, my wife and I have four kids, and I can't tell you how many times my wife has sat up in the bed, you know, in the middle of the night uh, because she hears some crying, you know, of a child. Or not even always crying. Sometimes it's whimpering, or sometimes it's shuffling or something, you know, and I don't hear it, but she hears it. And, and the reason she hears it is she is inclined. You know, she's tuned in. She's attending uh, to those children. Uh, she's ready, you know, to meet every need. Now, I, I want to do that too, but she's got a frequency that I don't have. And that's kind of the picture here. You know, David is crying out. Uh, this is shouting desperate prayer. David is nowhere near God's holy hill. Um, you know, but... He's not near a tabernacle or anything. He's been driven out. He's in the wilderness. It doesn't matter. You know, he doesn't have to be in the right place at the right time. Why? Because he worships a God who's inclined to him, like a mother's inclined to a child, who hears the slightest little something in the night, and there he is. Right? So what we have in this burst of praise to God is this great example of David preaching the gospel to himself, of really latching on, of saying, this is who God is, this is what he delights in, and that is a greater, that, that's a greater truth than my heart, which would accuse me, you know, which would condemn me. That's a greater truth than, than what my enemies say. You know, David's on the, on the receiving end of all these attacks, but he knows, and he knows what's being said about him is true, but it's not true about God. You know, so he turns from the accu accusation, he turns to adoration, becomes worship. He wastes no time getting there. He turns to the God who's his protection, his life, the one who is quick to restore him, the one who is inclined toward him. And having done that, you know, look what ensues. What comes out of that, what grows out of it is, is a peace in verses 5 and 6. There's a peace that kind of waits for him, you know, for him to enjoy. Uh, and, and, you know, that turn in the text has got to kind of shock you. It shocks me to, to see that, you know, David is in fugitive mode. Um, you know, and if the fugitive life is anything, it is a life of restlessness. You know, I saw the movie, right? He's like, a, you know, in a ditch covering himself up with leaves, you know, and sleeping with one eye open and all this stuff. And, you know, people are after him, um, putting on disguises. You know, he can't ever settle down, uh, but David goes from that to, to rest, deep sleep. You know, he lays aside the search for kind of strategy and revenge and survival and protection and escape and all those things we do when we get rattled, you know, self-salvation strategies. He turns from that to worship. In the insanity of this situation, he finds gospel sanity. And even though you know, our translation doesn't really bring it out much, there's a real sense of determination in this. That, that personal pronoun in verse 5, I, is really emphatic. You know, as if to say the whole world has gone insane, the whole world is after me, things are terrible, but I lay down and slept. I did the audacious thing to sleep. 
That's deep rest, you know, by one who isn't swayed by urgency and demands of a world that would have you going from crisis to crisis to crisis, having to manage that on your own. You know, some of us know how brutal that is. But he finds rest. He finds protection, glory, restoration in God. And that yields, for David, it, it yields results. It's not just sort of a sense of he slept well for one night. It, 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 it works its way into the future. He's kind of saying, you know, I'm going to sleep well. I'm going to be a well-sleeping person. You know? There's this kind of continual clinging to God. He's quick to say that after the first night you know, of rest, that God will continue that. Um, and it's because there, there is a delight in him, a trust in him, a rest that could come, not just for a moment, but lastingly. Um, and it's, you know, his situation hasn't changed, but his heart has. Right? He hasn't found comfort in circumstances. Uh, whether they're good and bad, he's found comfort in the Lord. And, and I, you know, I love, as I thought about this, I love this line from Archibald Alexander. He was the first president of Princeton Seminary in the early 19th century. And he's, he's addressing his graduates, all these guys going into ministry. And uh, he basically, you know, is this crusty Presbyterian. He says, look, you're going into hard stuff. It's going to be hard. Um, you're going to suffer. There's going to be no shortage of your suffering. Um, but he said, here, here's what he urged them. He said, I, I want you to, uh, here's what I want to tell you. I want to urge you to not be so quick to ask that the suffering would be removed as much as you would ask that it would be sanctified. It's really an important turn, I think. Not to be too quick to ask that it be removed, but ask that it would be sanctified. That is, that God would work in it in such a way where you would find him faithful in the suffering. It's turning to his faithfulness rather than to your own strategies. Absalom and his men are after David. They're plotting his death. Um, they're turning over every stone to track him down, to undo him. Um, you know, but David goes to sleep because of who God is. So, enemies who are after you, the God who is for you, the peace that awaits you, and in the end, the faith that grows in you. There's a result. There's a fruit of this uh, kind of prayer. It's at the end, and, 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 you know, that you're able to see this growth in faith that's, been, that's really been forged by looking to God in the midst of a lot of trouble. It's at that point that David calls on God to arise, and don't miss the irony. David's going to sleep, and he's asking God to wake up. David's going to rest. He's asking God to go to work. Um, and, and as if this prayer couldn't get any weirder, okay, in verse 7, uh, which, you know, I think is one of the more challenging verses uh, on a couple of levels. Uh, you know, David is yet to be delivered. Absalom and his men are still after him. We've, we've talked about that. Uh, but the verbs in the second part of the verse are really in the past tense. There's, you know, so a straight translation would be something like uh, this. You have struck my enemies. You have broken their teeth. You've already done that. So, you know, you read that and you go, has God done it or not? Well, no, he hasn't. Uh, not technically. But the difference is, is for David, it is, it is as good as done. God's yet to, you know, execute justice and, and do these things. But there's no doubt as to what the outcome will be for David, not because David is just and will make it happen, because he trusts in God. He's got that kind of assurance. Um, it's grammatically challenging. You know, the content kind of ruffles up. There's real violence here. Um, it would be easy to think, you know, David has is, is, is got revenge on his mind. 
But look a little closer. You know, even though the conditions here are ripe for David to kind of marinate in the injustice of it, to nourish these thoughts, you know, that, uh, you know, could he please have the opportunity to break the teeth, to crush these guys? That's not what he does at all. He lets it, he kind of lets it all go. He's more concerned with obedience and trust in God than getting at his enemies. You know, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And David submits to that obediently. He leaves it to God to execute justice. And I want to say, as much as that violent imagery, uh, you know, kind of bothers us, I don't think we'll ever really understand any of it unless we connect it with the last verse. In verse 7, David asked God to save him from his enemies. In verse 8, he says, salvation belongs to the Lord alone. Those thoughts are meant to go together. And, and here's why. Uh, it's not salvation, okay, unless it's real deliverance from real trouble. You know, it's not salvation uh, unless it's being saved from sure destruction. You know, it's not salvation unless there's a gracious God going into the breach for us, you know, into our chaos, unless there is a God who is willing to take on certain death take on our mortal enemies and a whole hell of unleashed wickedness that exists. Getting victory, getting people out alive. You know, it's not salvation if it's not those things. It's something, but it's not salvation if it's not that. And if you make salvation something other than that, you know, of turning an otherwise happy life more happy, you know, or looking to God to kind of fluff our pillows, you know, or, or, or somehow, you know, finding successful self-improvement strategies, you know, soaring to new heights of fulfillment and realizing my dreams, as the dust jacket says, uh, you'll never understand this prayer. Because, in fact, salvation is dirty business. It involves the judging of the wicked. It involves the defeat of enemies. It involves the powers of death and hell. And it, it involves the bringing to life that which would not otherwise live. And its purest expression is a bloody cross. And to try to pretty it up and say that there is no cost is to not really fully understand it. And David doesn't shy away. He knows there's real danger. But he relishes and rests on the thought that salvation is of the Lord. It's of the Lord. He will defeat my enemies and give me salvation. He will take my otherwise unsalvageable soul and deliver me. He will hear my cries like a mother who recognizes the cries of her child in the middle of the night. Amazingly, this psalm concludes with a benediction, you know, just like you hear at the end of church. Um, it's a blessing, uh, and, and don't miss it. Uh, let it ring in your ears, maybe even as you leave church, because it's for everybody. Uh, David sees this as a salvation story. He sees it as his salvation story, um, but he wants the story to go beyond him because, you know, even though this is his particular emergency um, from which he must be delivered, he knows it's kind of emblematic, you know, of, of everybody's story who has known the saving God, uh, who's ever, you know, felt the condemnation of their soul and wondered if it's, if it's savable. And he grasps onto it um, and, you know, as if to say, everybody needs to hear this story. Everybody needs to be blessed by this God. You know, he knows it's not just his story of deliverance. It's God's story of saving. One of many. 
You know, David got himself in all kinds of trouble. Everything was his fault. It was all real and deadly and pressing in, but he turns to a saving God. So whether, you know, someone else is saving, saying it or you're saying it to yourself, you know, hear the benediction. Hear about that saving God. Know that your soul is not beyond salvation. In fact, if you're a wreck, you know, that might be a great place to begin. Great place to cry out. Know that there's nothing you can do to save it, deliver yourself, or construct a life that will keep you safe. You know, turn to the God whose nature is really both holy and gracious, and here's, here's your cries. You know, and it's with that in mind, um, I'm going to pray. Okay, let me pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you, uh, you know, for the intensity of this psalm. Um, we thank you for the word that searches us out. We thank you. Um, that you are a God who uh, is determined. You're a God who delights uh, to save our souls, souls that um, were any other person to see them uh, would conclude, you know, are, are not worth much. But you uh, delight and find, um, find us precious in your sight. Lord, we thank you that uh, you relate to us that way. We thank you that in our troubles, uh, it is your uh, particular joy to hear our cries and to answer them and to attend to us. And Lord, we thank you that you always get us to Jesus. Lord, we, we praise you for him. We, you know, we want to understand really maybe the entirety of our faith in this delightful thought that Jesus came to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. So we praise you for that and thank you for the uh, joy of gathering together and hearing this word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.